You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Jan Elster, who is a professor of political science and philosophy at Columbia University, and also the author of many books. I think probably the one that, that I remember reading when I first came out was Nuts and Bolts for the Social Sciences. That was a real classic, which I've gone back to repeatedly and recommended to many people. Also, we have Alchemies of the Mind, Rationality and the Emotions. We have Sour Grapes. This one is also a classic. We have A Strong Feeling, Addiction, Emotion, and Human Behavior. We have Ulysses, Unbound. And most recently, we have Your Turn to History, which starts with France before 1789, beginning of a series of books on the French Revolution. Welcome, Jan. Thank you. I should correct you. It's not a series of books on the French Revolution. It will cover also America in Volume 2 of the trilogy and comparison between France and America in Volume 3. Right. Now, look, you've been doing work in philosophy, political science, economics, rational choice theory for decades. And now you have turned to history and you're using all of the theories that you've developed over the years to kind of help explain this transformative event, the the French Revolution and also the the American uh, Revolution. Um, and historians, historians are, are oftentimes, they have, they, have a, they have sort of a, I don't know, a confusing relationship sometimes with theory, right? Because historians always want to emphasize the particular, while, while social scientists are always looking for continuities, right? And for general rules. So do you think that social scientists, you know, when they get into history, can they do history well? Or are they necessarily going to abstract from the detail that historians tend to emphasize? I try to do it well in the sense of paying attention to marker foundations of social movements. But I'm getting beaten over the head by historians who clearly don't particularly like what I'm doing. There's a small symposium on my book online, and the most uh, best known of these symposiasts was William Doyle at Oxford, and he clearly didn't like, like the work. I tried to respond to his criticisms, but I was prepared for this. Well, I mean, when in business schools, we teach using the case method. In law school, we teach using the case method. And through the case method, we're supposed to be deriving some general principles. And I think that your work is in the tradition of what we might call rational choice or kind of micro foundations or methodological individualism. And one of the challenges that you have when you use kind of methodological individualism is it's very hard to talk about institutions doing things or collectivities doing things, right? To say parliament did this or the third estate did that. And I think that one of the puzzles that that you're grappling with is how is it possible to talk about these collectivities as actors? Does rational theory run up against some rational choice theory run up against some limits in terms of being able to describe these actors? It's correct that I started out as avid advocate of rational choice theory. Now I deleted the word rational. in my book and my current work is just choice, which can be rational or emotional. So in this book and in the other books that I'm preparing, there's a lot of talk about e- emotions. Now, uh, methodological individualism, I think, is in principle always the correct approach. In practice, it may be impossible to gather all the data, and the microdata we can gather more often serve as illustrations than as actual evidence. But, you know, I'm doing the best one can. Sometimes you have to treat institutions like a court or a firm or whatever as actors. 
because you don't have, you cannot open the black box and see what's actually going on. But I think good science should always be guided by the ideal of micro foundations and always look for evidence, the standard historians' tools of letters, diaries, recordings not written for posterity, and so on. So, but it's very hard, but it's, uh, that's, I think it's, that's the way one can make progress. Well, at one point during the book, you talk about the book as being an, an emotional history, right? Like a history of the emotions that people experienced, because you believe that the emotions are a primary force in kind of, well, at least they interact with beliefs, they interact with information and ultimately lead to action. I mean, have the emotions been understudied? I mean, you described this book as a footnote to de Tocqueville and de Tocqueville certainly talked about emotions. Have historians ignored emotions? We talk about intellectual history, we talk about economic history, we talk about social history and cultural history. Does it make sense to, to think about a category called emotional history? Does it, does it make sense to think about emotions as these things which spread kind of like infectious diseases? <laughs> How should we be thinking about an emotional history? Well, there's a history of emotions, and then there's emotions to explain other historical events. My focus is on the latter. With respect to France in particular, there's quite a bit of work done on the history of the emotions. For instance, the turn towards sentimentality in France before the French Revolution. But uh, I focus on how uh, emotions like anger or envy or enthusiasm can uh, generate and explain behavior. And there I think there's, there are many references in passing. Historians you know, say the king was angry or whatever. But uh, to my knowledge, there has been very little uh, very few attempts to use emotions systematically to, to explain behavior. So that's what I'm trying to do, especially in volume two of the book, where I have a long discussion of a much neglected emotion, namely enthusiasm. And so you need to have some kind of model for what emotion development, emotion formation, the impact of emotions on beliefs and action and kind of how emotions diffuse, right? And th this has been a big part of your work over the years. So how, how have things evolved if you were to talk about the whole rational choice theory over time, as a role of the emotion, certainly in economics, right, we have, you, you, every economist is a behavioral economist at this point. And political science has always been kind of copying economics. I remember, you know, when I was at Duke, right, the political scientists all wanted to be economists in, in some way. Are we seeing sort of a similar diffusion of kind of interest in behavior and emotions diffusing through political science? I think there are many cases many individuals' dollars and maybe some individual departments. But by and large, uh, rational choice still is a high road to tenure in both economics and political science. Why, why do you suppose that is? I mean, because rational choice assumes stability of preferences and kind of stability of beliefs. It doesn't really have a model of belief formation other than maybe... I don't know, Bayesian updating. So why is it just that it's easier to, to model? You know, why, why is that? It's a beautiful theory, and also, as you indicated, well, it's not only that it's easier to model, but it holds out, holds out the hope of unique predictions, unique sharp predictions, whereas if you try to go look at emotional theory, you don't get that. For instance, if a king tries to oppress his people, will they feel anger, which might counteract the king's intentions, or fear, which will promote the king's intentions? So it's, there's an indeterminacy in much of emotion theory that I think uh, goes against the desire of the rational choice crowd to have sharp, unique predictions. 
Right. And I think if you talk to a rational choice person about contemporary politics, they will acknowledge the role of emotions and they'll talk quite a bit about ir- irrationality of voters and so forth. And so it seems only when you're trying to explain the past that the temptation to ignore them kicks in, right? Is that just sort of, I guess, a belief in the long durée where the emotions are just the surface phenomenon and they only loom large in the present and they kind of fade to importance in the past in these models? I've never met a rational choice person who doesn't acknowledge the importance of emotions in contemporary politics. Well, it used to be the case that the emotions were a residual category, irrationality, with no specific predictive power, more like rust in the machinery of decision. But now, uh, more and more, but not sufficiently, uh, people have come to see that specific emotions have very specific causal antecedents and very specific predictive implications. Not hard, sharp implications, because as indicated a moment ago, with respect to the anger-fear problem. But nevertheless, some predictive, or let me rather say, retrodictive power. In fact, I think that is probably where my approach differs from standard rational choice theory. They claim to be able to predict, at least in the science fiction world in which they live, whereas I only go for retrodiction, that is, history. So then is there a divergence between sort of a theory of rational emotions and a theory of emotions that allows for more, I guess, randomness or for more error, I guess? What are the different ways that you can incorporate emotions into a rational choice model? Well, I don't. I oppose it to a rational choice model. Specifically, in my book, there are a couple of diagrams. There's a rational choice model and there's the emotional choice model. And they are quite different. So, for instance, many... Emotional choice models generate predictions that violate rationality. For instance, people act against their, well, be careful here because self-interest and rationality are not the same thing, but certainly people act against their rational self-interest under the influence of emotions that already you pointed out with respect to vengeance. Revenge often is a pointless, sterile act, but never with harm the actor, but nevertheless, is undertaken under the uh, impulse of very strong emotions. So is, is an understanding of the emotions necessary to explain kind of collective action where collective action wouldn't otherwise make sense under methodological individualism, right? I mean, where groups and crowds and mobs will start to act where probably, I think it was Gordon Tullock had this model where, you know, it never made any sense for anybody to, you know, participate in a riot because, you know, the best thing to do would be to stay at home and let the other people riot, right? I know uh, Tullock's work on revolution and I have argued against it in various places. He thinks that people join revolutionary movements in the hope of becoming leaders in a post-revolutionary society. And I think historical examples, numerous historical examples, massively disprove that, that idea. But it's true that I think emotions, for instance, enthusiasm, can induce a willingness in people to neglect their self-interest. You see that if you study behavior in the American Revolutionary War, which I've discussed in the second volume of this trilogy, you'll see many uh, actors, John Adams, uh, George Washington, and many others refer to enthusiasm, both to its, its in, indispensability in motivating on self-interest action and in its short-livedness. Emotions have a short half-life and various other features that don't actually form a formal model, but form a complex of features that we can find in very many situations where emotions are at work. 
And so do we need to understand this? Do we need a, an emotional model of the emotions in order to understand kind of leadership as well, right? And how actors can you know, rally the troops, so to speak, and get groups of people to behave or, or act in, in, in ways that the leaders are hoping to kind of harness? I wish. I think leadership is one of the hardest things to understand, and I can't claim having understood it. Leadership can have one obvious role, namely in providing information to a set of people who are maybe even be unaware of each other. And, but the emotional, charismatic aspect of leadership, I find it too hard. It exists. It's very important, but I find it too hard. Yeah, I mean, look, my, my training in history was all kind of an owl school. And so we dismissed the whole big man, great man, Carlisle school of history as being defective, right? Our belief was that, hey, if Napoleon didn't emerge from Corsica, there would have been some other little general that would have emerged from Brittany who would have done more or less the same thing. And then, you know, when I move over to... That's what Engels said. Engels said that. If Napoleon hadn't existed, someone else would have taken his place. Yeah. And he even said that if Marx hadn't existed, someone would have taken his place. Right. And then when I move over to business school... Right. I'm always, I was tempted originally to think the same thing, that organizations have their dynamics and it doesn't really matter who runs the organization, but it's almost refuted every single day when you look at organizations and you see that the impact that a good leader can have versus a bad leader when it comes to not only designing the organization, but also, you know, imprinting the culture and getting the people on board to share a vision and so forth. I mean, is there a way to reconcile these things in history, the kind of more structural approach and one that emphasizes the importance of, of individuals? Well, what I do is to read good biographies of Philip II or Charles V of Spain, for instance, and see how they're very idiosocratic, serious, generated behavior. But the problem about studying leadership is that so far as we know, or as I know, you can identify good leaders only by the results. There's no way of identifying good leaders ex ante to pick them. Uh, that would be good, of course, if you could, but we can't. See all the people who have risen above expectations, like Harry Truman, and, and others have obviously fallen vastly below expectations. If only we could do the same thing for leaders that they do in China for like basketball players. <laughs> you know, grab them at age eight and figure out who's promising and, and then run them through the schools, right? Yeah, but even there, they cheat. I spent some time in China from time to time discussing emergence of leaders in, in provincial uh, China. And basically they cheat to get to get judged by outcomes. And then if the road collapses the next day after the visit of inspection, uh, who cares? So when you're trying to understand something like the French Revolution, I remember when I was working on the topic, you know, a lot of us were focused on the written texts, right? So we would look at the history of the books and try to find causal vectors, right? Where, oh, well, these lawyers were reading Rousseau. So, and then they participated in the assembly, right? So it must've been Rousseau comes up with this idea and then these folks read the books and then they decide to advocate for certain policies. And you argue that, look, that's the tip of the iceberg, right? Most people were illiterate and most people were, weren't writing, they weren't reading. We don't have any kind of record of what they were thinking and what they were feeling. So how can you do an emotional history of a period like this when the vast majority of the iceberg is underwater, so to speak. Well, for instance, if you see that behavior energy decreases with time, then that's an indication that emotions are at work because we tend to think, as you mentioned, that preferences are ordinary preferences, let's say self-interest are stable over time. But if people are willing to sacrifice a great deal of material interest and even their lives for a course, and then after a while, 
uh, in America around 1777, that willingness subsides, then that's an indication that emotion was at work in the earlier phase. And also, by the way, talking about lawyers, use Rousseau to justify decisions taken on other grounds. So when Robespierre cites Rousseau in the National uh, Constitutional Assembly in 1791, it is not because he was inspired by Rousseau, but he knew that this was a good rhetorical trick to, to get rid of his, uh, to use against his enemies. I could say more about that, but it would take too long. <laughs> well, one of the things that puzzled me is that in, in sort of a Kosian world, right, where property rights are stable and well-enforced and contracts could be negotiated at low cost, right? We would never have something like a French Revolution, right? We All the parties would get together and then say, hey, there's a Pareto-improving move that we can all do. And the clergy and the aristocrats would give up some of their rights in exchange for some other benefits. And we wouldn't have these radical and violent punctuations of the smooth process of bargaining. And so if that were the case, there wouldn't be a civil war, there wouldn't be a French Revolution, there wouldn't be an American Revolution. And so I think your work says a lot about why that doesn't happen. So why is it that we need to have some of these revolutions to kind of move things forward, whether it's the killing of the, the Jacobin kings or what is it that's driving this? Why don't we live in this Kosian world? What are the difficulties? Well, I think people are almost always and everywhere very reluctant to give up their petty, short-term and partisan interests. And reaching a period of optimality, as you said, always has involved some losers. There will be some losers. Uh, so unless people are willing to give up, as I said, petty, partisan, short-term interests, there will not be revolution or large social change. And emotions have the power to make them do that. And presumably they also have the power to slow down that process and get them to resist doing it. Yes, that's right. Counter-revolutions too are generated by emotions. In fact, in the third volume of my book trilogy that I'm working on currently, I am going to argue, and I've done so already in print several places, that the American Revolution was a counter-revolutionary movement motivated by, by fear of excessive democracy. If you were to summarize your thesis about the French Revolution, what exactly were the emotional dynamics that led to the French Revolution taking the path that it took? Well, it was a combination of anger and stupidity, I guess. Anger, especially in the peasantry, and stupidity in the way the elites reacted to the to peasant movements. That could be that could be one of a thousand, I'm sure, uh, nutshell descriptions. And the American Revolution presumably is not a combination of anger and stupidity in quite the same way? The English elite was incredibly stupid and, and ill-informed. And they also, as Anne Mitz pointed out in 1776, they had this ridiculous idea of the honor of the nation was more important than the welfare of individual uh, citizens. So they were caught in this uh, quasi-medieval framework of honor, national honor, and, and they knew nothing about uh, this... Uh, country at 3,000 miles, and as my French hero, Turgot, said in 1750, the American colonists were like fruits that had to drop from the tree when they were ripe, and they did. It was an unsustainable uh, operation. Maybe we can dig in a little more to the French Revolution. So you mentioned anger played a huge role, but, you know, weren't the peasants always angry, right? I mean, weren't they angry during the Fronde? You know, weren't they angry in, in, in the Middle Ages? Wasn't injustice sort of a, 
uh, a constant in their lives. I mean, every single time they had to make payments to the lords, every single time they had to pay extra for the salt, every time they had to pay a tax for entering a city. I mean, wouldn't this be a source of anger? What is it that jump-started the critical mass of anger that would topple the regime? It was a constant feature of the Ancien Régime. There's a book by an historian called Jean-Nicolas called La Rébellion Française, not revolution, but re rebellion, who catalogued 8,625 episodes of violence from 1661 to 1789 for all sorts of reasons. Most of them starting in the peasantry, but also some urban uh, rebellions. I think what happened in, in 1789 was the most important trigger, I think, of the revolution, it was a complex process, was the great fear in the countryside of the spring and summer of 1789, when a rumor developed six different places in France independently that there was a movement out to starve the people by cutting the grain before it was ripe, and various other fantasies, all of which were false, but were, which were immensely motivating. And that generated attacks on castles, destruction of uh, property records, some killing our lords, which in turn made the French Constituent Assembly abolish feudalism more, more or less overnight on the night of August 4, 1789. So that is, was, and uh, the, more or less at the same time, uh, the, counter, the very amateurish, stupid counter-revolution of the king's younger brother and his, and his friends in early July 1789, led to the sacking of the principal minister, that included the sacking of finance minister Necker, and that generated also popular violence, and Necker had to be reinstated after the fall of the Bastille. So I think the fall of Necker of the crew on, it was dismissed on, I guess, July 9th or something, 1789, was a crucial event because his fall was also one of the triggers of the violence in the countryside. Because that proved, thought the peasants, that the elites were not going to reform. They were just going to, to create anarchy, to recreate the old Greek regime. But clearly the formation of the bringing together of the Estates General, right, had an impact. Because now there was a forum for people to discuss. Now, some people would say, well, now that you have a forum, you have a marketplace, and people can start exchanging privileges and rights. And th this should lead to a smoother transition rather than some more violent transition. But I think the alternative to that is that when you bring these people together, now all of a sudden they can start influencing each other's beliefs and they can start to act collectively in ways that would disrupt the old regime, right? So is the existence, I mean, most people would argue that the existence of a parliament in England was encouraged to kind of more sm smoother transitions. But here, the formation of the Estates General led to sort of a, a greater discontinuity. What, what, what accounts for the difference between the French and the English? Well, I don't want to go into that difference. I think the phenomena are too different to, to lend themselves to a comparison. But in, 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 in France, it, what happened was that the aristocrats were confident, and even the third estate, the commoners, the bourgeois, were pretty confident that the aristocrats, the nobility, would be able to dominate the Estates General because of the deference that almost, third, almost all third estate members had for the nobility would just uh, lead the nobles to make, make the nobles able to dominate them. What then happened was that they met in Versailles on May 5th, 1789, but were stuck for six weeks over 
trivial question of procedure, namely the verification of the credentials of the deputies. During those six weeks, the 30 state members were able to get to know each other and trust each other and also to distrust the nobility. So, moreover, a crucial factor in this process was the lower clergy, because uh, in all order, other state general, church had made sure to place only bishop as its representatives. But Necker cleverly, we don't know why, packed the delegates, delegation of the clergy with parish priests. And then they were also, they were much closer to the people. So when the third estate got his act together, the parish priests soon joined them. And then the whole estate general, based on three separate orders, broke down and became one assembly where one voted individually and by individual votes, not by votes of the orders. So I think here the was a breakdown of deference. And I, I think I say towards the end of my book that maybe, maybe uh, the French Revolution occurred because and when the reaction of the third estate to the contempt of the nobility changed from being one of shame to being one of anger. But of course, you need two things. You need, you also, even if individually many people felt angry, they had to know that they were not alone. So we had to have both, as you might call, the breakdown of adaptive preferences and the breakdown of pluralistic ignorance, where people are unaware of each other's motivations. So these are two crucial psychological. So it becomes common knowledge yeah, that there's yeah. this shared yeah, exactly. right, anger. And that process took place, I think, during those six weeks. Yeah, it's amazing how much proximity makes a difference. I read a fascinating history of South Africa, and they described how leaders of the uh, military arm of the ANC met with kind of the secret police leadership, and they went on safari together, and they were in a boat in the swamp and drinking a lot of whiskey, and it was that establishment of trust between the two of them, bonding over discussions about their families and, and seeing the humanity in each other that really was the trigger for the peace movement in that country. And without that kind of person-to-person relationship, if they had been isolated from one another and just publishing talking points, they would never have come to that kind of agreement and that realization that they could well, work Well, something very similar happened in Poland in the spring of 1989 in the negotiations between Solidarity and the, uh, and the communist leadership, where the fact that they negotiated together personally was what made the leaders uh, trust solidarity, that they would not, that solidarity would not take revenge when they came to power. So, so that's why transition went non-violently. Well, of course, that was stupid of the communist leaders because what made them believe those promises of non-retribution? They were, promises were not credible, but the communist leaders believed them. So that's why it happened. Well, isn't that sort of the obstacle to getting rid of most dictators, right? I mean, if a dictator gives up power, then the new regime is going to kill them or arrest them or confiscate their wealth, right? So I think a lot of people have proposed a, some island in some paradise island where we could just kind of send all the dictators right, whenever they're ready to retire. How can, I mean, it's the inability to make these credible commitments yeah. to, for mercy that kind of entrench a lot of these um, regimes, right? That both in Latin America and Eastern Europe, dictators or autocrats were willing to believe in these essentially empty promises. Because democracy can be defined as, by many features, but they include the fact that independent parliaments, independent courts, you cannot promise that the court will not prosecute you. 
because courts decide that for themselves. Right. Well, this is a general problem, right? The problem of credible commitment that governments are faced with all the time. Certainly, my research in grad school was really all about sovereign lending in the early modern period. And this was the problem of the French king, right? The French king, although it was absolute monarch, was terribly weak, right? Because he was incapable of making these commitments to repay loans and not confiscate investments and so forth. He was unable to make himself unable to break his promise. I think one of the themes that you have in the book, which is really you come back to over and over again, is this idea of the status and how hyper-conscious everyone was of status and the status hierarchy in the Ancien Regime. And of course, look, every aristocratic society had sort of a an obsession with status. And you join the noblesse de robe and then the noblesse de, de pay would look down on you. And then even within the nobility, it was like, well, my ancestors were nobles a century before yours. And people would get into disputes over who sat where at what table. And it seemed like no matter who you were and no matter where you were, everyone was hyper-conscious of where they stood in relation to everyone else. How did this both serve as a instigator of the revolution, but but also how did it, it serve as sort of a, a mechanism for maintaining the, the regime for as, as long as it did? Well, well, the desire for a rank or plaisance, as they call it, one expression of that desire was, as I mentioned, contempt towards. So, so one writer has said that the old regime was a cascade of contempts from one rank to the next to the next. So that was, and um, that generated so this was, there was, there was noblesse oblige. It wasn't like, okay, I'm superior. That means that I have to accept more responsibilities. Occasional individuals felt like that, but there was no, no so- social uh, norm to that effect. And I think it was a bit different in England, but I'm not, not a specialist on that. Now, the préséance, so maybe the préséance, préséance, the desire for rank, also in some way kept the elite together by providing a shared set of, of social norms that kept people in line. But I'm more struck by how it led to paralysis and violence, paralysis, uh, or sometimes just withdrawal because when people, the people who recognized that they couldn't be going in the first rank went home instead, instead of being in second rank. So it created a great deal of paralysis. And, in it- and of course, in, in the colonies, it was very different, right? So the this was not as important a phenomenon, except of course in the in, in the South, where you know racial categories Virginia, took this place, uh, right? Many of the of the these sort of rank issues uh, that people, when well, if they didn't get to f- sit in the front row in the municipal council or whatever, they just went home instead because they wouldn't sit there to be uh, being insulted. So in Virginia, yes, but even elsewhere, there was quite a bit of rank, but not in that virulent, toxic form, which you find in France. Right, but these are front, these are fronts to people's dignity. I mean, this seems to be, in in all environments, a motivator or a trigger on rest. Yes and no. I mean, it, uh, often people simply adjust to it. So, for instance, in the Soviet Union, people adjusted to the situation, and they they were not treated with no dignity whatsoever. But they read the newspapers that in America there was prostitution, racial problems, unemployment, and so on. So they could console them sense with that and then somehow not seek dignity because to do that would be dangerous so it's and i think it's I think what i just referred to earlier as adaptive preferences it's just very common that people people instead of trying to confirm or seek 
they're dignity people, especially if they're isolated from each other, just go along and try to get bread for the next day and read about America in the, in the newspapers. Well, we see this in a lot of countries, right? So in India, right, it's very hierarchical and your caste is inherited and more or less dictates your path through life. In China and North Korea and other places, right, the status of your grandparents before the revolution really dictates in many ways your access to political power and economic success. And yet we don't really see the kind of unrest in, in those countries that you might expect. So so why do we see what triggers the unrest in I mean, is every situation different? Is can we just say, well, there was a spark that was lit in the French countryside and random events and stars congealed and then we had it? Or is it it, can we as social scientists predict, right, when these structures will break down? No, we can't. Nobody predicted, no social scientists essentially predicted the implosion of communism, which is sort of striking testimony to the, to, well, what I said earlier about retro, retro diction being easier than prediction. Because now, of course, we can see why it had to happen. But China, we don't know anything about what goes on in the Chinese repression apparatus, but some friends tell me that there are one or two million people full-time employed, just keeping track of people, especially on their activities on the internet. Because the internet has the potential for creating communication and, as you said, common knowledge. But there are, if there's a million people or two trying to prevent, that is an obstacle. Of course, that's what rulers have always done, try to prevent subjects from getting together. So even nobles in the old regime couldn't assemble on any or anything. It was always seen as a potential uh, plot with, a, as I mentioned, the history of the front in mind. Well, I think in China right now, the fear is that these corporations are becoming too powerful, right? The the Alibaba is like the fermier general, right? I mean, they're becoming these entities that have a power of their own uh, separate from the state, and so they have to be yeah, kind of well, reined in. Uh, for me, it's a black box, and I'm sure that people who know something about it, but I don't. Now, uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that almost every single person that I've had on my podcast mentions Aristotle at some point, right? It's almost a requirement. You don't get on the show if you don't mention Aristotle. And you argue that your your theory of emotions is rooted ultimately in Aristotle, right? With a little help from Seneca and La Rochefoucauld. So could you kind of tell us what can we still learn from Aristotle about emotions and how have you developed this model over time? Well, that's a big order. Well, Aristotle was the first person who understood that emotions had specific cognitive antecedents so that the cognitive antecedent that is a belief generating hate was not the same as a belief generating uh, anger. He was the first to understand that. And uh, it was also very acute in his insights about what the targets of emotions are, the specific emotions. You see, many social scientists, even today, talk about emotions as if it were one great uh, category. But emotions do their work by virtue of their specificity, that is, by their cognitive antecedents and uh, which action tendencies that are also very specific or different from the, for the different emotions. So if you are angry, you want to make your, the other person suffer. If you hate, then you want the other person to disappear from the face of the earth, as Aristotle said. So they are very different. Or, so, and it's even really on the micro level that Aristotle is so, so good. And Seneca anticipates, not just anticipates, but put forward uh, claims about emotions that are still not 
as well recognized as they, they, they should be. For instance, this inherent duality of oppression as generating either anger or fear, and therefore how wise rulers should think long and carefully before they start engaging in oppression, which has a tendency, not always, but often, to backfire. That's what the Englishmen discovered in, in, in the 1760s and 1770s. They thought they could scare the Amer Americans by basically trying to destroy Boston. Instead, they created solidarity among the Americans. And so do you need to have sort of mechanisms of emotional transmission? Can you kind of, right, network theorists spend a lot of time looking into these vectors of transmission? There are a couple of models of emotional contagion. I think they are a little bit too fragile for empirical research, but they are intellectually interesting. One is that when you experience an emotion, your face changes. When other people see that, they mimic unconsciously your facial expression. And then it's a feedback from facial expression to action. So your action, yeah, so, so that way they can, emotions can spread in the population. Then there is another theory that you may be familiar with uh, as an economist, the, what it's called again, is a... Information cascade. Yeah, so that's also hard to get a handle on empirically. So I think the, in my, the studies of crowds that I've read, the most robust mechanism is simply that people see that they're safety in numbers. They're safety in numbers, and moreover, shame, as Lerner Foucault said, liberates, no, no, numbers liberate you from shame. They don't internalize, it's a decency or, or peacefulness that usually prevent people from being violent. It's, it's undermined by the fact that others uh, behave differently. So, so, so they are, but uh, I think the study of emotional contagion or dissemination or whatever, propagation, is very hard. So there are these two models that are nice, uh, abstractly, but how do you actually get the evidence? Well, I think future historians will find it a whole lot easier because they'll be able to kind of look at all the Facebook <laughs> data, which will hopefully be preserved, and they'll be able to see this in action in yeah, real sure. time, right? And, you know, I think the pandemic uh, also would leave behind itself vast data that can help sort of micro-analysis of uh, why some countries uh, did well and others didn't in fighting the pandemic. Now, you also reference the Tocqueville's argument that you're most likely to see a revolution precisely when the oppressive regimes are kind of loose, loosening up or lightening up. And certainly that was true with the Soviet Union, right, where Gorbachev began to engage in some liberalization and that really led to his demise, right? And if you believe the Tocqueville, it's kind of like a handbook for dictators and it's essentially telling them, Whatever you do, don't let your foot off the pedal of oppression, right? Because you might unleash something that you can't control. It, would that be a, a proper guide for the modern Well, modern there's almost a temptation in the face of social un unrest to give some concessions, to pacify people. And, and sometimes it works. For instance, Bismarck managed to do that, but it can uh, have the opposite effect because suppose you are uh, oppressed or exploited along five different dimensions. You just take it for given. It's a fact of life. It's part of the social landscape. That's the way it always been, it always will be. But then one of these exploitations or oppressions is taken away. And then you ask yourself, well, this can be changed. And that's, and that's why measures taken to, to satisfy population may actually make it more, more angry. You know? So although 
population is objectively better off because they are less exposed to the oppressed, they are one dimension, subjectively they feel worse off because, as Stockholm says, they feel the other forms of oppression more strongly. And that, that I think, is very common for us to find the very same mechanisms in, in attitudes first towards blacks and then American, first slaves and then American blacks, that there are, in 1809, I think it was the governor of some southern state who complained, who was puzzled that after better in the conditions of the slaves, they seemed to be more rebellious. He couldn't understand it. And in 1963, Wall Street Journal, I think, had an editorial also saying now that we do so much for the blacks, but they just seem to be, be getting more, more rebellious. So that, but sometimes, of course, uh, concessions do work. But the point is, from the leader's point of view, how can I know? How can I know whether oppression will make people afraid or angry? How can I know whether concessions will make people satisfied or dissatisfied? How can you know? And they can't. Well, I think, you know, among the most important insights that you've included in your work is, is the idea of credible commitments, right? And and I'm wondering, is there a guidebook or a how-to, right? We look at governments all over the place who are struggling with this, right? How do you commit to policies that would encourage investment, that would encourage people to make commitments, right? So if you're Argentina and you're trying to convince your people to repatriate their money and invest locally, right? I mean... No one believes them. No matter what they say, no one is going to believe them when they say that they're going to respect the integrity of these investments, right? So so whether it's creating central banks or whether it's creating non-expropriatory tax policies or whether it's trying to encourage people to return back to a country that they fled, countries, they struggle with this. And I think they, they sincerely, these leaders do sincerely wish that they could make these kinds of bargains, but they can't. Do we have a guidebook? Do we have a how-to? Is there a modern prince that we could kind of write and hand to these leaders? What are the key secrets to credible commitments? Well, I'm sure you read Norton Weingast, right? Yes, of course, yeah. And they say that in the abstract, there are two ways of making credible commitments. One, you can build an institution that will prevent you from reneging. So that, for instance, the English king needed to get the permission of parliament uh, for, uh, for issuing money. And if he overstepped and didn't repay on time, they just stopped giving him money. So an in institution. Or you can do it by precedent, hoping that people will take your current behavior as a reliable predictor for future behavior. And they say that the second method rarely works in these institutions. Now, here's a puzzling fact about France. In seven, through most of the Ancien Regime, Kings devalued the money by substituting uh, copper for silver or whatever they did. And as a result, there was constant inflation and insecurity and economic inefficiency. Then in 1726, they decided to stop this and have a stable money, which kings had said many times before. After 1726, there were no further devaluations. Because until the Assignat. Hmm? Yeah. Until the, until the revolution. Yeah. So that's a puzzle because... This was too, too dangerous to touch, as it were, that it, because they understood that once you start that, then it, there will be devaluations or uh, deflations or whatever, devaluation of the, of the value of the coins uh, in, in, in the chain. So in the end, you will lose, not gain. So, but for some reason, precedent worked. Well, now there, I think, there's, isn't there a couple of economists who wrote a book on how to make credible commitments, their name might come to me. 
but there is of course all of this goes back to shelling but it seems like it, in the latter case you need to have a collective belief that the tiniest deviation is the equivalent to a large deviation right it's kind of like when you're I think it was George Ainsley who talked about quitting smoking, right? You have to somehow convince yourself that if you have one cigarette, then, you know, you're dead, right? <laughs> if you, like one cigarette represents the entire lifetime stream of cigarettes, which is, a, which is, which is an illusion, right? It's a, it's drawing a line in the sand and saying that this is a significant boundary. It's a, you need this shared collective illusion in order for it to mean something right it's a signaling yeah, model but it's, to some degree when does it work and when doesn't it for instance with respect to repaying government bonds either principal or interest on time and, and on the proper terms it ne never worked every king promised it and every king broke the promise until one of the very last uh, financial ministers uh, Calon, who actually stuck to keeping his promises because he thought that would create confidence that would get as it were coins out from the subsoil where people had hoarded it and actually start spending it, which I thought would be some kind of artificial demand, sort of slight, slightly Keynesian. But no, it's, it's you know, Schelling. Thomas Schelling uh, was, of course, the originator of, of the whole very problem. Although you can see it, you can see it even earlier, but not formulated theoretically. For instance, in the run-up to the Revolutionary War, there were people who said that Edmund Burke, for instance, said this, that it's all, uh, Americans should let us have the right to intervene and tax, but we, can, we will never actually use that right. Well, maybe the current government couldn't do that, but how could they commit that future government to behave in that way? Especially since a parliament, one parliament cannot bind future parliaments. So, it was, so, that, so both, you could say that by exaggerating that both the American and French Revolution were caused by the impotence of omnipotence. French king was impotent because he couldn't make people believe that he would repay the loans on time. And the and British Parliament was impotent because they couldn't make the Americans believe that they wouldn't tax them whatever they felt like it. And so do you see a unity in your work between the work you did on things like, like addiction and sort of in these endogenous preferences and your work uh, on the larger kind of social issues, how do you tie together your, your work on kind of individual choice and these grand historical narratives that you're telling now? I suppose so, since it's all mine. But as far as I'm concerned, it was just one damn thing after another. Of course, there is some continuity. So this is a logical progression that your work has gone through. Well, there is, there is some progression because I started from Marx. I wrote the book on Marx, I took my doctoral degree on Marx, and figured out how to understand Marx and economics. Then I figured out I had to start, study economics, and then I had to study the foundation of economics, rational choice theory. And so for a while, I was so blinded by the beauty of that theory. But then I started to see so many counterexamples, first of the behavioral revolution kind, first Kahneman, but then also emotions. And that was fueled by my interest in constitution making, which began with my interest in constitution making in Eastern Europe, and also then the two constitution making processes in America and France at the end of the 18th century. So, and then I was so struck by the importance of, of emotion, but it's, but in between, I did all sorts of other things, so there was no steady progression. 
I forgot to mention your other book, Security Against Misrule, which I also have floating around here, which is on constitutions. So I guess, final question. I remember when you wrote this book, Nuts and Bolts for the Social Sciences, and then the sequel, and I thought every historian should read this, right? Because most historians lack the they lack the toolbox, right? They, they often don't have sufficient grounding in, in social science and, and, and choice theory. Do you think that the way in which we train historians needs to be more fundamentally grounded in social sciences? I mean, when I was studying history, there was a great deal of emphasis on method and on archival research and, and a bit of historiography. But in terms of really being rigorous in one's social scientific approaches. And th this was something that I think there was more disagreement on. I think the social sciences in general have two pillars, namely history and psychology. And these two can mutually benefit from each other. I think many historians are, if you read them closely, good historians are sort of implicit theorists. They have their eye open for the telling detail, uh, uh, the country example or, or the, or the, or the or a hit, hitherto unnoticed connection. And uh, of course, and so and that could be made more explicit. But I think, as I said, I think many historians are really theorists who don't know that they are. They don't generalize very much, but they, the best historians do generalize that. So some, somebody said that an event isn't important unless it's repeated. So there is something there. And on the other hand, psychology should learn from historians. For instance, historians have struggled with emotional enthusiasm. There's not a single textbook, handbook, article, website, with minor exceptions, that even mentions the emotional enthusiasm. Although it has an, it's a well-defined cluster of features, and emotion has immense importance for human behavior, Kant said, and John Adams said, without enthusiasm, nothing great is ever done. You would think that would be something worth studying. Well, Jan, thank you so much for joining me. France Before 1789, check it out. Of course, all the rest of the books, Sour Grapes, Ulysses Unbound, Strong Feeling, Alchemies of the Mind, and Nuts and Bolts for the Social Sciences. Jan, thanks so much. Okay, thank you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>